Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating or review. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash That's B-A-I-R-D-O. It was an event that would have a massive and lasting ramification upon Canada. What began on Thursday, May 15, 1919 at 11am would create a ripple effect that is still impacting Canadians to this very day, over 100 years later. It is the 1919 Winnipeg General Strike, and it is truly an unbelievable tale. At the time in Winnipeg, social inequality was prevalent and many of the working class were dealing with impoverished living. Wages were low, but prices for goods were rising, and employment was far from stable. For the massive influx of new immigrants coming into Winnipeg at the time, there was also intense discrimination. Add in the fact that the housing and health conditions were abysmal, and you have a powder keg ready to go off. Winnipeg was dealing with unprecedented growth. In 1881, the population of the city was 7,900, but by 1921, it was 179,000. Most of the population growth was from immigration, as was seen across the prairies at the time. The First World War was another large influencer on the strike. Employers had had massive profits during the war, and the soldiers who returned home wanted to fix social conditions at home after seeing the terrible things of the First World War overseas. The Russian Revolution, which had occurred only two years earlier, would also be a big influence among many workers who were influenced by the socialist ideas voiced by local reformers. With so many Eastern European immigrants down the city, the idea of socialism was being embraced. In addition, the cost of living had risen by 64% from 1913 to 1919, and many people could not afford basic goods while company owners made huge profits. One more thing added to the situation. The collective bargaining of the metal and building trades had failed to secure contracts with employers by the end of April 1919. The building trades went on strike on May 1st, followed by the metal trades on May 2nd. The Winnipeg Trades and Labour Council then decided to call on its 12,000 affiliated members to vote on a general strike. This had been done in 1918 and proved successful on a smaller scale. On May 13th, the preliminary results of a vote were announced, with 8,667 in favour and only 645 against. A strike committee was created with delegates elected from the unions. The leadership of this committee would include people like James Winning, who was a bricklayer and president of the Trades and Labour Council, and R.B. Russell, a socialist machinist. At 11am on May 15th, 1919, nearly everyone in the workforce of Winnipeg left the job and went on strike. This amounted to 30,000 workers in both the public and private sectors. This naturally caused a complete end of all normal activities within the city. I can quite well recall the walkout, you know, as it took place on the CPR where I worked at the time. The workers there, they just poured through the gates in an atmosphere that almost uh, approached one of outright jubilation because there was a general feeling at the time that the strike would be of such magnitude that it would so completely tie up everything in the city of Winnipeg that it couldn't last for very long. Events proved otherwise. 
The police force voted in favor of the strike, and this is important for developments later, but the strike committee asked that they remain on duty. Workers in the waterworks for the city also remained on the job, but provided water service at a reduced pressure. Firefighters, postal workers, and telegraph operators were all part of the strike as well. One interesting thing about the strikers was that most were not even members of the unions. The first people to leave the job, for example, were telephone operators at the city telephone exchanges, but they were not union members. On May 21, 1919, the Western Labour News reported, Never have the workers of Winnipeg had so much confidence in their causes today. Never has there been such unanimity as to absolute necessity of settling once and for all the two points at issue, namely the right to collective bargaining and the right to a living wage. We demand an eight-hour day, a decent livelihood for all, free bargaining through the medium of the unions of our choice. We do not want revolution, insurrection, violence. At the start of the strike, participants would assemble in parks and listen to speakers provide reports on the strike and to discuss social reforms. The strike committee also released a newspaper called the Strike Bulletin, which was published daily. The newspaper also asked that strikers remain peaceful and idle. One example of this was the newspaper stating, the only thing the workers have to do to win the strike is do nothing. Just eat, sleep, pray, play, love, laugh, and look at the sun. Our fight consists of doing no fighting. The philosophy of the strike at that time was do nothing. Commit no overt acts. Do nothing. And they just, just met daily down in the Victoria Park and in each of the suburban districts we had speakers go out there and address meetings in each of those localities to keep the people informed as to how the strike was progressing. Unlike strikes of the past, women played a very important role and helped to build solidarity among the strikers. Helen Armstrong, known as Ma, was one of two women on the strike committee and she encouraged young women to join the strike and would often speak at meetings in street corners during the strike. The Women's Labour League helped to raise money so women could pay their rent during the strike, and they also set up a kitchen that provided hundreds of meals a day to strikers. Negotiations between the strike committee, city council, and some businesses quickly started, and it was all agreed that milk and bread deliveries would continue, and that the delivery men would not be seen as strike breakers. Each delivery wagon had a poster that stated, Permitted by Authority of Strike Committee. Needless to say, despite the strikers being peaceful and working with the city to ensure police and delivery still happened, there was still an immense amount of opposition to the strike by some. The city was heavily divided in the strike by class lines. Opposition to the strike came together as its own committee of businessmen and professionals who called themselves the Citizens Committee of 1000. They encouraged the businesses not to give in to the strikers, and they attempted to place the blame on immigrants coming to the city for the problems facing the working class. They stated that the immigrants were also the leaders of the strike. The newspaper, the Winnipeg Citizen, was published by the committee that claimed the strike was actually a revolution and an attempt to overthrow the government. On May 27th, the committee newspaper stated, No thoughtful citizen can any longer doubt that the so-called general strike is in reality revolution. By the end of the week, the acting Minister of Justice Arthur Meehan, future Prime Minister of Canada, and Minister of Labour Gideon Robertson came to Winnipeg and refused to meet with the strike committee, choosing instead to meet with the Citizens Committee of 1000. The government was worried the strike would spread to other cities, which it did, in smaller capacities, across the country. 
This meeting resulted in the conclusions of the cabinet ministers being influenced by those opposed to the strike. This was exemplified by the fact that Robertson reported back to Ottawa stating, the motive behind the strike was the overthrow of the constitutional government. The cabinet ministers warned postal workers that they had to go back to their jobs or lose them, and they gave city council permission to use the army and northwest mounted police since the city police were on the side of the strikers. The Canadian government then passed an amendment on the advice of the Citizens Committee to the Immigration Act. This change allowed for the deportation without trial of any British citizen not born in Canada who were charged with a crime. This would amount to about 30% of the population of Canada. In addition, the provincial government ordered all telephone employees to return to their job or lose employment. The government also broadened the definition of sedation against the government under the criminal code. On June 5th, Mayor Charles F. Gray announced a complete ban on public demonstrations. The public proclamation would state, by virtue of the authority vested in me, I do hereby order that all persons do refrain from forming or taking part in any parades or congregating in crowds in or upon any of the streets of the city of Winnipeg, and do hereby request of all law-abiding citizens the full compliance with this proclamation. Four days later, the city dismissed the entire police force of Winnipeg because officers refused to sign a pledge promising to neither belong to a union nor participate in the strike. The City and Citizens Committee then replaced the police force with untrained individuals who were better paid than the previous officers, making about $6 a day. Most of these people were ex-soldiers from the First World War, and this salary was twice the temporary discharge allowance given to returning soldiers. There were some rough characters amongst them too. Second story men and forgers, burglars and whatnot, I think mostly from Minneapolis, the place of the police. Any, any decent man wasn't going to go and join the, join the police when the police went out on strike. All of the new officers were given clubs and told to patrol the streets. And within a few hours, Frederick Coppins, a decorated First World War veteran and a member of the new force, charged into a group of strikers on his horse and was immediately grabbed and beaten. This then led those against the strike to charge that he was attacked by enemy ruffians. And it was a, a wagon spoke, bought from Rory Wagon Works on Rupert Street. And they bored a hole through the, uh, the top end of it, then they had a, a big piece of uh, cotton uh, rope, and it fitted over your wrist. And you went down the street, and you had this confounded thing. It would be about two feet long. Some people, have, because their memories don't serve them too well, thought they were baseball bats, but they weren't. They were wagons full. The two major newspapers in Winnipeg, the Winnipeg Free Press and the Winnipeg Tribune, lost most of their workers because of the strike. But once they resumed publication, the publishers were very against the strikers. The free press called strikers aliens and anarchists and ran cartoons of strikers throwing bombs. Other major newspapers were no less against the strike. The New York Times proclaimed in a large headline, Bolshevism in Winnipeg. On June 17th, the Royal Northwest Mounted Police arrested several prominent leaders of the strike, including George Armstrong, R.B. Russell, and others. Armstrong was the only among them who was not a British immigrant. Two days later, the strike would reach its destructive climax. On June 21st, in the early hours of the day, several World War I veterans took to the streets to demonstrate in a silent parade over the arrest of the strike leaders. 
Thousands of people came out in support, and Mayor Gray demanded the end of the demonstration, which the soldiers refused to do. A streetcar driven by one of the members of the committee of 1,000 came down Main Street to City Hall. Stryker saw this as provocation, and surrounded it, tipped it slightly, and lit it on fire. Gray then told the Royal Northwest Mounted Police to go into the crowd on horseback with clubs to disperse them. After this failed, the mayor read the riot act from the steps of City Hall, and the Mounted Police rode into the crowd, firing 120 shots from their revolvers at the protesters through sticks and rocks. Protester Mike Sokolowski was killed instantly, while Mike Shezerbanwitz would die later. In all, 30 people were injured, including four police officers. As well, 80 people were arrested by military patrols at Portage in Maine. The strike bulletin printed the events of what would be called Bloody Saturday, using headlines such as Kaiserism in Canada and The British Way, which would get editors J.S. Woodworth and Fred J. Dixon arrested on libel. Woodworth, who was a Protestant minister and social activist, stated, This strike is not engineered from Russia. In reality, the strike has nothing to do with revolution. It is an attempt to meet a very pressing and immediate need. The organized workers, like everyone else, are faced with the high cost of living. Like most people, they imagine that if they can get higher wages, they can buy more food. All of these events together resulted in the confidence of the strike committee being shattered. The strike committee hoped to avoid any more violence and met with Manitoba Premier T.C. Norris and stated they would end the strike if there was a royal commission into the cause of the strike. On June 25th at 11 a.m., the strike was ended and workers went back to their jobs, if they had any. Many were blacklisted or punished by their employers. The metal workers went back to work with no pay increase and many workers were jailed or deported and thousands lost their jobs. Following the strike, eight of the leaders were put on trial for conspiracy and prosecuted by members of the Citizens Committee. Seven, including Armstrong, were found guilty and sentenced to one year in jail, while Russell was given two. Abraham Heaps was the only one to serve as his own lawyer and was the only one charged who did not do jail time. As for the editors Dixon and Woodworth, Dixon gave a speech on free speech being an essential part of the British tradition. After 40 hours of deliberation, the jury acquitted him and all charges against Woodworth were abandoned. A provincial royal commission found that there had been no criminal conspiracy by foreigners. The strike would have several lasting impacts on the future of Canada. When the Great Depression hit, labour militancy began to rise and union memberships increased heavily. If you remember, I did an episode on Blairmont in Alberta, which actually elected a communist city council briefly. And this happened in the mid-1930s. In the 1920 Manitoba provincial election, 11 Labour candidates won seats. Four of them were leaders in the strike. Built on the events of the Winnipeg General Strike, by the end of the 1940s, an industrial relations regime was established under Canadian law to provide security for unions and their members. The strike also helped to build the divide between cultures. Canadian-born workers were working together in the strike with immigrants from Europe. And while it would still be three decades after the strike before workers were granted collective bargaining rights, the impact of the strike on the workers' lives can't be discounted. So what happened to some of the leading individuals of the strike? Let's take a look. R.B. Russell, while serving his prison sentence, ran as a Socialist Party of Canada member in the provincial election of 1920. 
he came very close to being elected when 10 members were chosen for Winnipeg on a transferable ballot. Russell lost the 10th seat by 62 votes. In 1921, he ran in the federal election while still in prison, losing by only 715 votes to Liberal Edward James McMurray. After he got out of prison, he was selected as the leader of Winnipeg's one big union, and would hold that position from 1922 to the 1950s. He continued to try his hand at politics, always coming close but never being elected, and he would pass away in 1964. Today, R.B. Russell Vocational High School in Winnipeg is named for him. Charles F. Gray, the mayor of Winnipeg at the time of the strike, would serve until 1920 in that position, before going back to regular civilian life. He would eventually move to British Columbia in 1941, where he operated a salt mine, before passing away in Victoria in 1954. As for Frederick Coppins, the man who charged into the strikers, causing the situation of the strike to begin to escalate, he would go on to play a German machine gunner in the classic movie All Quiet on the Western Front in 1930. A Victoria Cross recipient in the First World War, he apparently enlisted in the Second World War with the Americans, but this is not confirmed, and he would die in 1963 in California at the age of 74. George Armstrong was one of the main leaders of the strike, and he was married to fellow committee member Helen Armstrong. He would join the Socialist Party of Canada and would be elected to the Manitoba Legislature in 1920, serving until 1922. After the Socialist Party split in 1921 into the Communist Party and the Socialist Party, he remained with the original party and would be often be heckled by members of the Communist Party who called him a sellout. He would continue to run provincial elections, never being elected again, before he moved to California, where he passed away in 1956 at the age of 85. Woodworth and Dixon would both enter politics. Dixon would serve in the Manitoba legislature from 1920 to 1923 when he resigned following the death of his wife. He would then work as an insurance salesman before passing away from cancer in 1931 at the age of 50. As for Woodworth, he would become the first leader of the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, serving from 1932 to 1942. He was also a member of the House of Commons from 1921 to 1942, sitting primarily as an independent and with the Progressive Party of Canada. He was instrumental in getting the old age pension plan passed through negotiations with the Liberal Party, who in 1925 had nearly lost the election and needed support of other party members. In 2004, he was ranked as the 100th greatest Canadian of all time, and several schools are named for him. He would pass away in 1942 in Vancouver at the age of 67. To this day, the Winnipeg General Strike is the largest in Canadian history, and it would lead not only to the establishment of the new Democrat Party, but the career of arguably the greatest Canadian, and universal health care itself. In 1911, a seven-year-old boy by the name of Tommy Douglas arrived in Winnipeg from Scotland with his family. They would return to Scotland during the First World War, before coming back to Winnipeg in 1919. Tommy began to work as a messenger and would see the Winnipeg General Strike firsthand. He saw when the Northwest Mounted Police fired into the crowd, and this would stay with him for the rest of his life. And he would state later that the government response was all part of a pattern. Whenever the powers that be can't get what they want, they're always prepared to resort to violence or any kind of hooliganism to break the back of organized opposition. Douglas would, of course, eventually move to Saskatchewan and become the Premier of the province, serving from 1944 to 1961. During his time as the leader of the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, he would lead the first socialist government in North America and introduce universal health care, which would eventually become Medicare. Douglas would go on to be voted the greatest Canadian in 2004, and it can't be understated that the impact of seeing the strike 
and people pushing for more rights would have on Douglas, and where they would lead him down the road. Information for this piece comes from Canada and Illustrated History, Wikipedia, the Canadian Prairies, a history, Canadian Encyclopedia, the Canadian Public Health Association, humanrights.ca, thoughtco.com, CBC, and CBC Archives. I hope you enjoyed this look at the Winnipeg General Strike, and if you did, again, please give a rating and review. You can reach me at the new email address of CanadianHistoryX at gmail.com. Remember, that's E-H-X. You can also visit my website to see hundreds of articles on Canada's history by going to CanadaX, that's E-H-X, dot blogspot, dot C-A.